Does life imitate art or does art imitate life? Isn't it true that all innovation starts with imagination? You can't have advancement without a lot of creative thinking. The funniest jokes are based on something true. We have all heard that truth is stranger than fiction, but doesn't it make a crazy kind of sense that our most absurd and speculative fiction would become the truth? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who wasn't allowed to watch much TV growing up, so I didn't know who the yellow kid with spiky hair riding a skateboard and saying I carumba was on all my classmates' t-shirts. Incidentally, I wasn't very popular in grade school. To me, the character on the shirt looked a lot like a little boy in the cartoon shorts by Matt Groening on The Tracy Ullman Show, which I was allowed to watch with my parents. But this character was much better drawn. He even had his own catchphrase. Needless to say, I was not very au courant when it came to pop culture back then. Or today. Though in my defense, while my classmates were yelling, Eat my shorts! And don't have a cow, man! I had a copy of Matt Groening's School as Hell comic collection in my backpack. So I may not have been up to date on what the kids were watching, but... At least I was a giant nerd. Anyway. Who knew that little yellow kid would lodge himself into the cultural zeitgeist for three decades and counting? Who knew the reach of The Simpsons would be as massive as it's become? Who knew that after a feature-length movie, video games, a pretty decent ride at Universal, hundreds of celebrity cameos, and all that merch, that The Simpsons, this dysfunctional family headed by an abusive alcoholic, would someday join the wholesomeness that was the Disney family? Actually, it turns out, the folks in the writer's room at The Simpsons may have known. The writers on The Simpsons have had quite the knack for correctly predicting world events. For a pack of comedy writers, they sure have had a prescient sense of the future. Usually, when we think of famous prognosticators, we think of Nostradamus, the 16th century astrologer, physician, chemist, and seer who, in 1555, published Les Profites, a collection of 942 very short poems, literally four lines each, that he claimed foretold future events. Over time, some people have indeed connected his writing to major world events that happened long after his death. Among those events, the Great Fire of London in 1666, the French Revolution, Louis Pasteur's work with vaccines, the rise of Adolf Hitler, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, JFK's assassination, and the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 all supposedly predicted through his little four-line poems. Or maybe we think of Edgar Cayce, who in the early 20th century would put himself into a sleeping trance from which he would supposedly astrally project himself into the spirit realm, from which he would gather information that he would then bring back to his clients. Some believe Casey predicted the stock market crash of 1929 that led to the Great Depression when he said... We may expect a considerable break in bear markets. 
This issue being between those of the reserves of nations and of individuals, and will cause, unless another of the more stable banking conditions come to the relief, a great disturbance in financial circles. This warning has been given, see. Casey's believers claim he also predicted World War II, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the use of blood as a diagnostic tool, as well as the monopolization of telecommunications companies, to name a few. Or we might think of Gene Dixon, who wrote a syndicated column, an astrological cookbook, and a book of animal horoscopes, and who, some believe, also predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But if you're looking for a more modern-day prophet, you might want to tune into Fox on Sundays at 8 p.m., 7 Central, of course, and catch an episode of The Simpsons. Note to my strangers, my producer, Angela Palladino, named the following section Nostradamus. Letters of congratulations and gifts can be sent to the Obsessed Network office. Bart, Lisa, Maggie, Homer, and Marge Simpson first made their appearances on television on The Tracy Ullman Show in 1987 in one-minute sketches laced throughout each episode. Creator Matt Groening said he came up with the idea for the show in the lobby of TV writer, director, and producer James L. Brooks' office. The Simpsons earned their own spin-off show, which premiered on Fox on Sunday, December 17, 1989, and, unlike most spin-offs, far surpassed the show it was born on in terms of success. While The Tracy Ullman Show had four seasons and 81 episodes, The Simpsons, as of this recording, will have had 35 seasons and 750 episodes. And, by the way, if, when I said Tracy Ullman, you said who, first of all, shame on you. But second of all, go look up the sketch Skin the Duck on YouTube. By season 12, the year 2000, The Simpsons viewership peaked at 14.7 million viewers. Now it only averages a little less than 2 million viewers per episode. But the diminished viewership doesn't mean that there aren't still the ride-or-dies who will whip out a quote or meme anytime they can. Especially when an event happens in real life that had seemingly been predicted on an episode of The Simpsons years before. Whenever that happens, social media becomes awash in proof that The Simpsons has the power to tell the future. So, what were the prophecies foretold by The Simpsons? The first one, I'll tell you, is pretty gruesome, and I'm telling it early so we can get it out of the way. On October 3rd, 2003, Roy Horn, one half of the entertainment duo Siegfried and Roy, was mauled by his seven-year-old white tiger Manticore during a live show at the Mirage in Las Vegas. Apparently, Roy went a bit off script during a bit with Manticore in which he prompted the tiger to say hello into the microphone. Instead, Manticore bit Roy's sleeve. Both Roy and Siegfried, as well as a crew of backup trainers, tried to distract the tiger with raw meat, but for whatever reason, the tiger was only interested in Roy. As Roy backed away, Manticore first swiped at his legs, knocking him down, then bit into his neck, dragging him off stage. The crew finally succeeded in getting Manticore off Roy by spraying him with fire extinguishers. 
Listen, I'm no big cat tamer, but it seems to me there should be other more official tools at a tiger trainer's disposal, no? Like, sure, you've tamed the tiger, but also it's still a tiger. And you know what they say, a tiger's gonna tiger. Shouldn't you have some contingencies in place for the possibility that it will indeed tiger? A fire extinguisher seems awful slapdash. Then again, I've never witnessed a tiger mauling, so who knows how I might react. I'd probably pee my pants and faint. Then again, again, that's why I'm not a tiger trainer. You see my point? Anyway, in a Simpsons episode titled Springfield that aired in 1993, Mr. Burns builds a casino complete with a theater featuring a fictional tiger taming act, Gunther and Ernst, characters that were meant to parody the real-life Siegfried and Roy, who ran a popular Vegas act at the time. Gunther and Ernst's white tiger wears a ridiculous hat with a pipe in his mouth while riding a unicycle around the stage. The fictional duo announces to the audience that the tiger is much happier on stage than he had been in the jungle, at which point the tiger goes into flashbacks in which he was sleeping peacefully in the jungle, and the two men pull up, wake him up, and shoot him with a tranquilizer dart. Back on stage, the tiger becomes increasingly angry by the memory until he pounces off the unicycle and mauls the pair live on stage. So, of course, when Roy Horn was viciously attacked by his tiger in 2003, Simpsons fans were quick to point out that the Simpsons had predicted the attack 10 years earlier. And, I mean, sure. But also, again, you're working with unpredictable, top-of-the-food-chain predatory animals. In 2014, season 25 featured an episode called You Don't Have to Live Like a Referee, in which Homer becomes a referee at the FIFA World Cup because of a shortage of staff due to a corruption scandal. Homer, in a rare showing of self-restraint, for some reason suddenly grows a conscience and refuses to take bribes, leading to Germany winning the World Cup. That very summer, Germany did win the World Cup, which could, I suppose, be chalked up to a supernatural gift of ESP by a primetime cartoon, or maybe there were some big soccer fans in the writer's room who were closely watching the teams and had a good hunch of who might take the next World Cup. But it wasn't only the prediction of the winning team that the Simpsons got right in that episode. Indeed, the next year, a huge corruption scandal inside the ranks of FIFA involving bribes, fraud, and money laundering was exposed, prompting Simpsons fans to go, Aha! See? They told you so! Well... Sort of, I guess, if you believe that powers that be behind professional sports are completely incorruptible. In the episode Lisa the Greek, which first aired in January 1992, Lisa predicted the Washington Redskins would win the Super Bowl, and wouldn't you know it, they did. The next two years, the episode was reworked to incorporate the teams competing those years, which happened to be the Cowboys and the Bills, both years. And Lisa, both years, predicted that Dallas would win. And lo and behold, they did. The Cowboys winning the Super Bowl in the 90s. Who would have thought? 
that's rhetorical. Everyone who followed football were pretty confident the Cowboys would win. But the Super Bowl predictions didn't just cover the game itself. In the 2012 episode Lisa Goes Gaga, Lady Gaga performs at the Super Bowl halftime show. And five years later, Lady Gaga did indeed perform at the Super Bowl halftime show. Not only that, but her costuming and choreography were strikingly similar to her cartoon likeness. The Simpsons even predicted she would fly over the arena, which she did. Slightly less amazing was the prediction that at some point she would play the piano during the performance. But that's like predicting Beyonce will have a fan blowing her hair back in any performance. You know, like, it's gonna happen. In the fifth episode of season 10 in 1998, titled When You Wish Upon a Star, Homer goes to work for a pre-scandal-addled Alec Baldwin and his then-wife, the former movie star and blonde bombshell Kim Basinger. And if you'll allow me to go on a slight tangent here, the fact that Basinger, apparently requesting Evian water to wash her hair with in a film contract, seems to be the thing that tanked her career, whereas Alec Baldwin, it seems, can call his daughter a pig, scream at flight attendants, stand by his new wife after she's exposed for pretending to be Spanish, and literally kill a person, albeit by accident, and still work, pretty much sums up Hollywood. Anyway, Homer goes to work for them and pitches a movie idea to execs at 20th Century Fox, and in the very next shot, you see a sign that reads, 20th Century Fox, a division of Walt Disney Co. And then, in 2019, Disney announced a $71 billion merger with 20th Century Fox. Of course, merger just means we own you, but you still get to keep your name. Now, the predictions don't stop at showbiz and sports. The Simpsons has also predicted some pretty major science and tech stuff. Season 6, episode 19, Lisa's Wedding, which premiered in March 1995, is set partly in the year 2010 when Lisa is 23 and getting married to an Englishman named, of course, Hugh. One shot from the episode shows the famous London clock tower, Big Ben, sporting a digital face, because it's the future, and to the left of the tower is a skyscraper that didn't exist when the episode was written, drawn, or aired. But then in 2012, construction began on a skyscraper called The Shard, which, when it was done, looked a lot like the building in The Simpsons' London skyline and was located in roughly the same place as the drawing. That episode also features a smartwatch and video calling, once again prompting believers to be like, The Simpsons foretold it! when that technology started coming out in the 2010s. I mean... Maybe. The episode The War of Art features a shot of a character who looks an awful lot like Richard Branson floating in a spaceship. Thirteen years later, in 2021, Branson and some of his employees at Virgin Atlantic did indeed fly into the stratosphere and did indeed float around. Because that's how billionaires have fun, I guess. 
Episode 11 of season 5, which aired in 1994, has Homer using materials from the nuclear power plant where he works to create a hybrid plant that's a cross between a tomato and tobacco that he calls a tomacco. Thirteen years later, some fruits, vegetables, and flowers began to pop up in Fukushima, Japan with bizarre mutations, just two years after the nuclear power plant disaster there. Turnips that looked like they'd grown fingers, tomatoes with weird boils on them, conjoined peaches, and mutant daisies. The Mutant Daisies is the name of my next band. I'm not sure if any rigorous testing on the plants was ever done to determine if radiation caused the mutations, but one would certainly argue it's a pretty strong case, you know? I'm no nuclear botanist, but if a mutant daisy grows right near a nuclear fallout zone, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say it was probably the radiation that did it. Way back in season two from 1990, Bart catches a three-eyed fish in the pond in which Mr. Burns' power plant dumps its toxic waste. Bart names the fish Blinky. Blinky comes to be a regular visitor in the Simpsons universe and a beloved character. And of course, in 2011, some people fishing in Argentina really did, indeed, pull a three-eyed fish from a reservoir that, according to an article on Seeker, quote, receives water from a nuclear power plant, end quote, which sounds like a nice way of saying the reservoir is a dump site for a nuclear power plant. Yeah, just like I receive seven million germs a year from my son's school. I am basically a nuclear waste dump site, but for cooties. The dudes who caught the Argentine fish told reporters they had fished there for years, and now, with the three-eyed fish, they suddenly thought about the nuclear waste and were, understandably, not thrilled. In the 1998 season 10 episode, The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace, Homer decides to become an inventor, and in one shot, he's seen writing some complex math equation on a chalkboard. It's a very quick shot, but that didn't mean that keen eyes didn't put it together when 14 years later, the Higgs boson, or the God particle, was discovered. And it turned out that Homer's equation was very close to the equation used to find the mass of the Higgs boson particle. Like, goodwill hunting level close. Mathematician and author Simon Singh told The Independent in 2015... If you work it out, you get the mass of a Higgs boson that's only a bit larger than the nanomass of a Higgs boson actually is. Now, I don't understand all that, but Simpsons producer Al Jean told the New York Times in February 2018... The Higgs boson was written into the script by David Cohen, who's one of the people with a math background on this show. What he put in was a plausible guess at that time, so it wasn't, like, totally out of left field. Sure, but also a plausible guess about something called the God particle is pretty impressive. And while most people would regard writing for The Simpsons as a dream job, you have to wonder if Dave Cohen was like, no, when someone else got the Nobel Prize for discovering Higgs boson after he nearly did. Maybe he should have stuck with math. Now, while many of the so-called predictions I've rambled through so far might seem to have pretty straightforward explanations if you just use a touch of logic, there have also been some predictions on The Simpsons that are less (laughs) 
and more. In the season 11 episode, Bart to the Future, Bart sees into the future in which Lisa is the president and she complains about having inherited a mess of a budget from the last president, Donald Trump. Also in the episode, Homer rides down an escalator behind Trump while a crowd watches. Fifteen years later, Trump descended an escalator and announced he was ruining the world. Er, I mean, running for president. Terrifyingly, the year the Simpsons had Donald Trump being president was 2024. Remember when Senator Ted Cruz fled to Cancun in the middle of a literal disaster in which almost 300,000 Texans found themselves without power for days because of an ice storm? In 1993, The Simpsons' Mayor Quimby sends a video message from his office to the people of Springfield where a pandemic is raging. But it turns out he's actually on a beach in the Caribbean in front of a fake office wall wearing a suit jacket with a bathing suit bottom on. But you know what they say, a tiger's gonna tiger and a politician's gonna politician. Very few politicians get to office by being honest and trustworthy. Incidentally, Ted Cruz is apparently a huge Simpsons fan. At the 2018 Conservative Political Action Conference, he said, quote, I think the Democrats are the party of Lisa Simpson, and Republicans are happily the party of Homer and Bart and Maggie and Marge, end quote. Bro, you do know that Lisa is literally the smartest Simpson, right? Like, by miles? Homer is an alcoholic, abusive father. Bart is an infamous scofflaw. Maggie is a literal baby. Babies can't vote, Ted Cruz. And Marge, Marge is fine. Actually, I don't think Marge would be a Republican at all. She's more of a fiscal Democrat who is conservative on some social issues, but still. Simpsons producer Al Jean responded to Cruz's claim... Ted Cruz says Maggie Simpson would vote for him. Yeah, I think Ted's the one who could use a pacifier in his mouth. <laughs> the creepiest prediction that The Simpsons have made thus far came in 1997 in the episode The City of New York vs. Homer Simpson, which has one of my favorite Simpsons lines of all time in it. To be fair, I've probably only ever seen a couple dozen episodes. Homer is standing in front of the World Trade Center guarding his car, and he asks a local street vendor if he has anything to drink. The vendor says, I have Mountain Dew or crab juice. And Homer goes, Ugh. Oh, jeez. I'll take a crab juice. Anyway, in the episode, which takes place largely in front of the Twin Towers, Lisa holds up an ad for a bus to New York. The ad reads, New York, $9, and the nine is placed next to a silhouette of the Twin Towers, making it look like the number 9-11. I don't have to say much more about that, do I? In 2010, executive producer Bill Oakley told the New York Observer, quote, $9 was picked as a comically cheap fare, and I will grant that it's eerie given that it's on the only episode of any series ever that had an entire act of World Trade Center jokes, end quote. Eerie, indeed. 
If you've listened to this show enough times, you've probably predicted that this is the part where I go, yeah, but... So if you want to continue having your mind blown about how the writers on The Simpsons can see into the future, I'd suggest you turn this off now. But if you like hearing me poke holes, let's proceed. So here's the thing. Art and life so imitate each other. Before anything can be, it has to be dreamt. You can't build a building without someone drawing up plans. You can't draw up plans without someone with a vision that no one else has had, or at least that no one else before them has spoken. Actually, let me rephrase that. Sometimes lots of people have the same vision, but for whatever reason, others will only listen to one kind of mind. For example, the idea of video calls like those shown in the episodes Bart to the Future and Lisa's Wedding, things like Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, these have been around for decades. Stanley Kubrick put video calls in 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm sure there are any number of mid-20th century sci-fi movies with video calling. The 1994 Macaulay Culkin vehicle Richie Rich not only has video calling, but has video calling on a cell phone. Pee-wee's Playhouse had video calling in the mid-80s. People think writing comedy is easy. People think comedy writers sit in fancy studio writers' rooms with platters of sushi, make jokes, and then drive their Ferraris home to their mansions in the Hollywood Hills where their personal chef has a three-course meal made of diamonds waiting for them, and then their personal dentist comes and fixes up their broken teeth after they've chomped down on those diamonds for dinner and throw in a complimentary facelift at the same time. But writing comedy is hard, as evidenced by that joke I just tried to write about writing comedy. It's rare you meet a comedian who isn't really smart. Most of the writers on The Simpsons went to Harvard. Of course, so did George W. Bush. But still. And I never met them, but I would venture a guess that even Gallagher... Andrew Dice Clay and Carrot Top were slash are actually very smart. Well, maybe not Carrot Top. Comedians who don't graduate from Harvard just tend to be the types that don't do well in school because academia isn't their thing or their home life was so dysfunctional growing up that school was not exactly a priority. There are few people with more childhood trauma than successful comedians, and so they end up telling jokes to cope, because as I often say on this podcast, if you can't laugh at it, you might just explode. William Irwin, chairman of philosophy at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and author of the book The Simpsons and Philosophy, which is used as a text at colleges all over the United States, told the New York Times that the writer's room is packed with brilliant minds. These are highly educated people. Despite not always doing great in early school years, a lot of comedy writers are arguably overeducated whose job it is to absorb as much about current events, art, literature, pop culture, science, and politics as possible to turn into comedy. Irwin said, When that many smart people produce a television show, it's bound to make some startling predictions. 
So you get a room full of really scrappy, smart, hungry comedy writers together, and they're going to try to one-up each other with the most ridiculous things they can think of. And it stands to reason that some of those things will come to pass, because humans are, at our very core, pretty ridiculous, are we not? Millions of years of evolution and the way we show our affection for each other is mashing our eating holes together? What is that? We are supremely strange. So the showrunner, the person who basically runs the writer's room, starts the day by saying, we're doing an episode set in 2024, go. And the writers start throwing out the most ridiculous scenarios they can think of. Inevitably, someone says, Donald Trump is president, and everyone laughs, and then cringes. And then there's a moment of silence. And the showrunner says, that is the most ridiculous thing I can think of. Put it in the script. But it turns out that particular prediction was actually even less mind-blowing when you remember that Donald Trump actually announced that he was going to run for president as a Reform Party candidate in 1999 and had publicly considered running for president a decade before that. Also, at one point, the idea of Ronald Reagan becoming president would have seemed completely ridiculous. He was a B-list movie star who shared screen time with a chimpanzee. Though, to be fair, by the time he did run for president, he at least had some experience in politics. Predicting the winner of a sports game is always a 50-50 chance. So yes, it's neat that they got it right three times in a row, but like there's an elementary school that correctly predicted the outcome of the presidential election for 48 years, you know? And, like, of course there was corruption inside FIFA. You have a bunch of sports teams from all over the world owned by mega-rich businessmen. You think mega-rich businessmen are any better than the mafia? I mean, sure, there are fewer Tommy Gun Moidas, but, like, it's essentially the same. I will give them predicting Germany winning the World Cup, though. Sort of. But... It's likely there were big soccer fans in the writer's room who were closely following the teams and were good at running sports stats. Still, 32 teams compete in the World Cup. That's a lot of teams to choose from. But considering, during the previous World Cup in 2010, Germany had come in second place with a narrow loss to Spain in the final, and the cup before that in 2006, They had also made it to the final, only to lose and come in second. And the cup before that, in 2002, they had also lost in the final. So it might be reasonable to say Germany was likely to make it to the final of the 2014 World Cup. And from there, they had a 50-50 chance at winning the game. As for Lady Gaga's Super Bowl halftime show being eerily similar to the one on The Simpsons four years earlier, come on. This one is not rocket science. Lady Gaga herself voiced her character on The Simpsons. If she didn't have any input as to what her character would wear or what kinds of stunts she might perform at a hypothetical halftime show, I'm sure the writers, having watched enough Lady Gaga performances to know basically what to expect, 
could come up with a pretty solid guess as to what Lady Gaga might wear, how she might dance, and that she might fly over the stadium. Not only that, but I'm willing to go out on a limb to say Lady Gaga probably watched her episode of The Simpsons at least once. So even if she didn't think she was imitating the show when it came time to design her Super Bowl performance, it was all in there, swirling around in her subconscious. Also, not for nothing, but the Super Bowl and The Simpsons are both staples of the Fox network. Who's to say the whole thing wasn't some orchestrated ratings shenanigan? Who's to say they didn't go to Lady Gaga and say, we want you to be on The Simpsons and then we'll give you a halftime show, but it has to be very similar to whatever they do on The Simpsons. Listen, if Succession is right and the head of an infotainment organization can decide who wins a presidential election, they can probably decide what the hired talent will perform on their own programs. For me, most of these so-called predictions are pretty explanatory. Smart writers writing smartly, you know? If there's a couple of performers who work with Jungle Cats as entertainment, it's not much of a leap to imagine their act going horribly awry. Or, you know, for example, the writers might at some point have been like, what's an incredibly stupid and dangerous thing a bunch of billionaires might do just because they can? And someone replied, what about taking a submersible vessel down to the ocean floor where about a million variables could easily kill you? And then they wrote episode 10 of season 17, which aired in 2006, in which Homer's rich father convinces him they should do just that. A comedy writer's job is to make comedy out of everything. I am 100% sure that any comedian or comedy writer who had ever watched a Siegfried and Roy act had thought up the scenario in which one or both of them was mauled by their cats live on stage. Not that it's funny, but like, you know, it's funny. Or at least it was funny until it actually happened. But it's like writing a bit about a tightrope walker falling to their death. Or a troubled celebrity tragically dying at a young age. Like, it's going to happen, you know? The movie Idiocracy, which is very flawed, but also very funny, predicted a future based on the most absurd version of where we were headed based on what was already happening. So far, the only actual thing they got right was that people would wear Crocs, which is absurd. Let's hope they didn't get much else right. In 10 years or so, we're probably going to be seeing the kind of technology dreamt up on Black Mirror. The 2019 British miniseries Years and Years features incredibly hard to refute deep fake videos of politicians saying horrendous things. And that is already starting to happen. For me, one of the most remarkable predictions The Simpsons have made is the one about the Higgs boson particle, which, as I said, is pretty impressive. If it really was just a guess, it kind of makes you wonder why it took people so long to find the correct answer. Look, I understand math about as well as I understand why people like the Twilight movies, which is to say, not really at all. And I know the guy who wrote the equation for the shot wasn't plucking numbers out of thin air. He was like a real math guy, but still. 
And the other one I don't know how to explain away is the 9-11 one, except to say it was one hell of a coincidence. Sure, 9 is a comically low number for a bus fare, but I generally think 7 is a funnier number than 9. Why not 7? And of all the famous buildings in New York City, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, the Statue of Liberty, why the Trade Towers? It's weird. As producer Al Jean said in a 2021 interview, One of our writers, the guy whose episode predicted Donald Trump as president, said it best. If you write 700 episodes and you don't predict anything, then you're pretty bad. If you throw enough darts, you're going to get some bullseyes. In other words, cast a wide enough net and you're bound to catch a three-eyed fish. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. How do you know you're under attack when there doesn't seem to be a weapon and the wounds can't be seen? When American diplomats in Cuba started hearing strange sounds and experiencing strange symptoms, Havana Syndrome was born. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. If you don't like our show, leave a one-star and terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash Rush Limbaugh Timeless Wisdom. And yes, that is an actual thing. (laughs) 